Hi, I'm Jen Naughton, and this is Bookish Society Secrets. In case you stumbled upon us, here's the sitch. We give you the inside dish, spoilers included, about the latest and greatest new books for kids and teens. Because I live by the mantra, so many books, so little time, I'm using this corner of the internet to boost authors and their stories. So, hey, back to back to your story, your cat story. I'm back. My cat story. A your cat, cat story. story. A cat story. I still have a million questions, but we're running out of time. So one thing I wanted to ask is, all right, so I've got to phrase this appropriately. I'd like you to give us a spoiler, but not a big spoiler, not like spoiling the book for kids, but like, uh, hey, this happens in this book and this is why you want to read it. Okay. So if you have ever had a friend who does something that you just cannot understand why they could possibly do this thing, and then you go and do it with them anyway, you will probably like my book. That is so good. You rock at this. Aw. Way to go. We can, we can, why don't you ask me some more questions about the book and we can cut out all that ramble in the middle. <laughs> I like or all that stuff it. in the middle. I'm already, I'm already thinking maybe <laughs> we'll make this like a two-parter or something. I don't know. Sure. You, you have really good answers. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I have time to keep talking if you have time to keep talking. Oh, I do. I do have time. Oh, so. great. All right. Then Chris, you can cut it into two. Or Chris, I'm so sorry. I, I will get your address and I will send you a cup of coffee, friend. Man, I keep <laughs> looking up because for me, like all stage managers and editors are in the booth. The... So I'm like, Chris. Chris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gosh. Okay. So we should talk a little bit more about the books. I wanted to talk about the art involved. So I feel like, so I have, I have a daughter in college and she's getting, she's a semester away from her BFA in photography. Oh, Masata. So she has taken a lot of art history, right? And so as I'm buying all these textbooks, I am devouring them myself because I'm that person. I'm all like, I bought this book. Give it to me. (laughs) I love a textbook. How shameful. I know, right? I know, same. (laughs) How did you, I don't know, I was going to say, how did you decide? But it's probably not like that because it's more like inspiration. I know, I know, I know a lot of artists now and, you know. Oh, no. So, okay. So, so how did you decide what famous art? to put in like did you you just did you know like you're like when I tell this cat story because okay so I guess we should say and it's I don't think it's a spoiler to say that in this book the cats have their own lore or legends and so they're looking to see if the places in these stories are real right yes then how did you decide what art to match with different stories okay so when I first came up with the book those passages where the cats step out of the reality of Valletta or uh, Gozo the places the physical human real places that they inhabit they step out of the panel and then they walk into works of art from human history right Uh, and so when I first had written this book those passages weren't in there it was a more traditional animal story, Watership Down. 
Okay. The cats want to go on a journey. They go on a journey. Um, and there was a panel that I had drawn where Scylla, the little black and white hero cat, is in St. John's Co-Cathedral, which is in Valletta. And she is talking to Paolo, the cathedral cat, who is telling her about this legend that she might want to go find. In that version of the book, he was the one who told her about it. Okay. And they were walking in front of a painting that is done by Caravaggio that is in St. John's Co-Cathedral. It's the beheading of St. John the Baptist. And it's this big, enormous, famous painting. And I have these cats walking in front of it because, one, it's in the cathedral. They were in the cathedral. And two, there are two little figures in the back of that painting that are sitting behind jail bars looking out on the action of what is happening. And so in my mind, there was a parallel between these two cats walking along, telling a story, and the two figures looking down and watching the story that's happening in this. And the way that I placed these cats in front of this painting, if you looked at it from a certain angle, it looked like they were in the painting. And so that kind of triggered something in my brain that I ignored for six or seven years as I kept going through revisions of the book. And then I was on a trip to New York City, and I was going through the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I love the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I love museums. It's the one with the big stone lions. Out yeah, front. yeah. And I, I was taking notes and I was going through everything. And I realized like I could use, you look at a wall of paintings in a museum and they look like comics. They do, yeah. They're pictures with frames. And you can, I, that's how I went through museums as a kid. I would try to find commonalities between pictures next to each other. And I would try to figure out what the stories were that were happening. And I thought, well, okay. My cats could go between the frames. Um, Scott McCloud, the great comics theoretician and my teacher, says of comics that time is what happens in the spaces between the panels. Because you have these freeze frame moments that go from panel to panel. The character is swinging back with a baseball bat. And then the next panel, you see another freeze frame that's moved forward 0.5 seconds in time where the character has hit the baseball, right? Right. And so time is what happens. And so when there, there's also travel that happens, so there's, there's time and space is what happens between the panels. So if I have my characters walk out of their world and into a human world of art, then I am able to tell these stories with a greater nuance because I'm able to cherry pick and steal from human visual history to add in shades of emotion and context from that human art into these cat stories, which are very simple, right? It, okay. It's a it's yeah. a paradise story. It's yeah. Scylla is looking for a place where she never has to worry and everything is good and she'll never be harmed. And it's, aren't it's, we all? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Right? Like she's looking yeah. for this place where everything's perfect and she doesn't yeah. have to worry about anything. So it's a very simple story. And if you put that story into the context of human artwork, you can have different shades on it. So how I chose the art, a lot of it is stuff that I really, really like and is stuck in my brain for some reason or the other. Um, or it's things like I have Hokusai's The Wave in there, which is a, a famous woodblock print. It's the views of Mount Fuji. And it's this, you, you've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. I'm yeah. describing it. Yeah. Your readers will have listeners will, sorry guys, will have understood this as it's this big, glorious 
overarching striped white and blue wave with bubbles of foam. And then your second glance, you realize that there's this little Mount Fuji just underneath it. And you can see that. And then your third glance tells you that there are fishermen in these traditional boats that are under the wash of this. And so it is, it's a picture that I love where it is in the book. It is in Radagunda, the poodle's section. So Radagunda is the counterpoint teacher. She is saying, you are looking for this thing, but why? Why are you looking for this thing? So her, because her questions are overwhelming the two cats, and because she is telling a metaphorical story that the cats don't understand, all of their pictures have to do with water and being swept over and being washed through and being buried. Um, so the art that I picked had to fit what was happening in the story. It had to be something that I loved and it had to be something that gave an additional emotion to what was being said that beyond just how the characters were feeling, it sort of enriched through the environment, whether that's comfort or loneliness or fear or, terror or hope or delusion, whatever it is that the characters are going through, my hope was that by placing these pieces of art through that, that you would, that the readers, even if they did not understand why it was there at first, would feel a certain way upon looking at it. And because I am a person who loves art because of what it says about human history, if you look at a portrait, the person is wearing what they want to be seen as. They are surrounded by objects that are important to them or their image. So you can read about people and you can read about civilization through how we depict ourselves in art. And so the context of this art is always crucial to understanding. And I've gone and picked it out and stuck cats in it. I've taken it completely out of sequence, which is boggling. Yes. So I have about 20 pages of footnotes that explain where everything comes through. And some of why I chose what I chose at the end of the book. Uh, I know. Which is really fun. Well, and that's why I'm thinking that when we read this, we might take longer than two weeks. Because I've, I've scheduled like two weeks per book for discussions. So that's like two hours with the kids. I'm thinking this might be, there's a lot. There's a lot to dig into. So we might uh, we might go longer. We might just make this like a whole month book because there's so many little like rabbit trails that I want to follow with them. I would love to hear what they think. You can tell them that originally I had about 50 pages of footnotes. Okay. But they had to be edited way, way down. Something that you'll see if you look for, if you're also a musical theater fan, there are references to about four different musicals that you can oh. pull out occasionally in the book. Well, since... Well, most of the kids are coming back from last year and they are like all obsessed with Hamilton. Yeah, there's a the, Hamilton ref- there's a Hamilton reference. Good. They will and, be and they will see it immediately. It. Okay. <laughs> also, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. So Oh, nice. And a few others. And a few others. So that's what I'm saying. It's okay. So I said this before I, I hit record, I think it's so layered. There's so much there. And like It's going to be just, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a master class of children's lit. Oh (laughs) Oh my gosh, you know. Embroider that on a pillow. What a beautiful (laughs) thing to say. Thank you. I'm 
boy, that's, that's a quote I'll steal from you. What a kind thing. I think that that's so lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm gobsmacked. I, one of the reasons my books look the way that they do is because I love to draw and I grew up loving Peter Spire who, and I, and did Noah's Ark and a fox went hunting picture book artists and where's Waldo and anything that could cram a whole bunch and lots of detail and lots of little things moving on every page so that when I am drawing and when I am writing it's I I just pick up stuff and I put it in there and then if it tastes right or it looks right if it feels right it gets to stay and sometimes stuff gets weeded out but I like things that are, are kind of layered together and, yeah. and shoot up and placed together and can be teased out of. You can pull little bits and pieces out. There are some, I've done some very tricky, subtle art things. If the kids are reading it, they will notice that there are flowers at the beginning of every teacher's story and of okay. the story that eventually Beto and Scylla tell. And right. those, those all have meaning if you look up flower meanings. And the rationale behind that, there's flowers at the beginning of every story. There's flowers at the end because, largely because Elia, the the garden cat, yes. the, the flower seller's cat, um, starts it. But also there's the idea of the things around us have meaning. And so you look in the backgrounds, you can pick out bits and pieces of things. It's also just because I like to draw and I have a hard time stopping drawing a page once I'm having a good time. So it's like, more detail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're just, it's so, it's almost like a literary eye spy, you know, like when you're on each page. So you're read. so like the when I was reading it, I would, I would look at, I would open, you know, the, is it the layout, right? Like the double pages. Oh, it's the spread. The spread. That's the yes. word. I'm like, I know there's like an artist word for this. <laughs> yep. It's right. The spread so of the I'm looking, so I would look at the spread and I would like, kind of look at all the pictures and then I would go and I would read the dialogue and then I would go back and I would just you would find like so many cool things and you know all in the background like you're saying and just like I don't even know enough about art to get all the connections but I can't wait to hand this to my daughter and I know that as I'm going over it and over it to um you know to build my lesson plans out it's just amazing. Oh, that's so kind. The thing I want to make sure that, that parents listening understand is you really yeah. don't need to know anything at all about art to, to read this book. Oh, right. No. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like there's like, if you do know about art, you're, you know, that's even eggs. better, right? Even better. But, the but it's, footnotes, all, it's all in the back. It's yeah, it's all, all in the back. back. I tell it's you what it is. Yeah. And the cats don't know anything. The cats don't know anything and they never learn anything about it. No. I've had kids ask me, well, do the kids know that they're walking through art? I'm like, that's a wonderful question. They don't. Yeah, they don't know. Because they are telling stories and listening to stories. So those parts of the book are the visual representations of their imagination. Which just happen to be famous paintings. Right. Or not right. famous paintings or paintings that really right. should be more famous as far as I'm concerned. Things that people should learn about. That's true. Uh, Margarita, yeah. Margarita Haberman, who's one of the great still life artists. Uh, we only have two works extant from her. And then she dove out of sight because people didn't believe that a woman could paint like that. Right. So people that you really should hear more about, it's in there too. As well as your, wow. your Van Goghs and your, you know, 
Chagall's and all of them. Well, no, not Chagall. I had Chagall. Chagall went out. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's probably hard to keep track of what stayed in, what, what went out. Originally, how did, like, how did you get this idea? Because, I mean, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but it seems like a dream. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you if you said, well, I had a dream about two cats. And I'd be like, of course you did. <laughs> so it all sort of goes back to that, that Malta trip. I am continually writing down ideas. Yeah. Um, there's. But how did you go from seeing the cats to being like, I could write a story about these cats? Oh, I just wanted to know what they were looking for. Okay. And so I started thinking, what could they be looking for? And then yeah. once I had a char- once I have a character, I can ask them questions. Right. I'm usually motivated by wanting to draw something. So it's like yeah. I, the the book that I'm working on now is about a girl learning to be a painter in Renaissance Florence, okay. and that is because I am fascinated with egg tempera painting. I'm fascinated with Botticelli and Leonardo da Vinci and all of them, and I wondered where are the girl painters. Yeah. Right. Going to going to art history classes in college. I was told, well, women just didn't paint. And I was like, well, nuts. I'd be a chicken girl, I guess. Like, I would <laughs> right? be a painter then. And then well, I thought, I'd well, doing... then I'd, I'd be a chicken girl who wanted to paint. So I have a character, right? Right, right. <laughs> so then I started asking her questions. And I'm like, why do you want to paint? How do you paint? How do you learn to paint? If nobody cares what you paint, why are you still painting, right? So once you have a character that you can ask questions for, you write out the questions and then you wait to see what they answer. And maybe their answers surprise you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they seem a little bit more like you or a little bit less like you. But you keep up that dialogue. And eventually you know what a character is thinking enough to write them into a story. There's a lot of characters that I love that I've asked a lot of questions of. And I just I haven't found a story for them yet. I don't know where they fit. So I have big notebooks and big file cabinets full of ideas and concepts and stories that just haven't gone anywhere. And that's wow. okay. And that's okay. Cause they might someday. Yeah. Maybe they won't. Oh, I, every time everybody asks me, is there a project that you, you'll never get to do? And I will tell them and I'll, so I'll say it to you. I had the idea for a wedding photographer who can't get a date. <laughs> And I've never been able to come up with a story that felt authentic to my voice with that character. So I'm putting it out into the world that if you hear that little nugget and you're like, I have a book, would you write that book so I can read it and stop thinking about it? Because I, <laughs> I can't, I can't put her anywhere. I don't know where she goes. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. I think all artists have something like that. And I'm kind of in the gosh, I don't know how to put it. I was going to say the the belief system, but that's not quite right. Of if you have an idea and you don't do anything with it for a long enough time, that idea leaves you and like someone else finishes it. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I've heard that expressed, but I just write them down on index cards <laughs> because I can't remember anything. If I, know, if I have right? an idea, I, I remember being told in elementary school, you know, oh, I had an idea, but I can't remember it. And then they say, well, then it can't have been a good idea then. That's not true at all. Oh, that's not true. It was probably a fabulous idea. So I write everything down and I keep it pretty well organized for me. And then I'm able to go back through and and find it and pick it out. Most of my ideas have had a fermentation period, you know, like good sourdough. It's got to sit and think about itself and become chemically something else. (laughs) The 
the first like yeast wafting over the the sugar bowl is probably not worth reading a whole book about. But after it's spent enough time bouncing up against all the other stuff in my head, um, something good happens. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's the the simplest things. I mean, like every culture likes fried dough with sugar. So, oh, because fried dough with sugar is fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, it's the best. And no matter where you go, everybody likes it. Yep. And if in your if you're in Minneapolis, you need to go to a baker's wife. Okay. Because they have cake donuts that have converted me from glazed donuts forever. Really? And yeah. Because. If I'm not know, a cake donut fan usually. That's because you haven't been to a baker's wife. And I say that as eh. the same. If, if you go in at 6.30 in the morning when they, what's called the state fair donut okay. comes out of the kitchen and I'm getting my reverential Ray Bradbury tone here. Yes. But they are a pillow and then they are soaked in syrup and then they are drenched in granulated white sugar. And it tastes like an August afternoon. They are, oh, I wish I was a poet or a better poet anyway. That, that, man, a baker's wife. But yeah, the creative process, it's, you go back to it. Yeah, heavy, heavy sigh for me because you know what? Chicago's like six hours away. <laughs> it's like not oh, that far for me to come up there. But you can oh. have a, per, but you can have a Peroshi. Yes. Uh, Right? Like yeah. oh, all the good Polish bakeries. Like Chicago yes. is a wonderful food town. Oh. And wonderful for donuts. I have like a, a favorite donut place for every type. So all right. Where do where do you go in where where do you go in Chicago? <sighs> all right. So if you want a good cake donut, I go to the donut vault. The donut vault. The donut vault. And it's gorgeous. If you look it up online, it's like a little tiny hole in the wall. And they had a heck of a time during COVID because there's basically, I don't know, six or eight feet and then the counter. And then like the rest of it's like the bakery, you know? So like the line went like very, very far around the block and, you know, because you had to be far apart and you couldn't really get anybody in there. But you got to uh, keep your local places open. Yeah. Of fault. I'll look that in. It's funny. Yeah. I, I usually describe, I, this is the first time I've ever described my creative process as being akin to yeast. I may have to yeah. workshop that more before I say it to too many more people. <laughs> I, I only, use, only donut lovers understand. <laughs> exactly. This is very important. I usually yes. describe it as a rock tumbler, which is oh, pretty yeah. accurate because I walk through the world and I pick up things that look interesting. Yes. And I don't know, they're covered with dust. They're sometimes they look a little shiny, but most of the time they're just sort of an interesting color and I toss them back in there. And then they all bounce up against each other and I check in on it eventually. And most of the time it just it, it was a clump of dirt or a clump of sand and it has become grit to polish everything else. It turns out it goes poof, it's gone. Sometimes you just get a shiny gray rock and you're like, huh, well, you're pretty now, but you're still a great rock. And then every once yeah. in a while, you get some interesting bits and pieces that you didn't expect. And those I take out. And once in a while, you get one that's big enough to be in a necklace by itself. And you can imagine it carrying a whole story. But most of the time, it's little small bits of shiny bits and pieces that then get strung together that can be a bracelet or a beaded necklace or something that is a little bit of continuance, shiny, continuance, shiny, continuance. And you get all those things together. And then if it doesn't look right in the bracelet you're making, you just put it into the drawer. 
So that's that's my creative process in a well-articulated nutshell. All right. So do you own a rock tumbler? I did as a child. So I did I. I loved it. I don't have one now. <laughs> I have meant to get one now, but uh, with COVID, myself, my partner, our daughter um, are living in a very small house all day, every day <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, in Minneapolis. And I think the rock tumbler would be the telltale heart between uh, yeah. the floorboards. So yeah. haven't done that yet, but when I am again, primarily the only living thing in the house minus the cats, I will get myself another rock tumbler. Okay. So yeah, you've got to tell me about your cats. We have three. So we do we. Three. Yep. Three is, oh my gosh. three is our top. My, my beloved spouse, Brian says that we have the rule that we cannot be outnumbered by our mammal companions. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> and, th- and this is a good rule because I'm a bleeding heart. Yeah. Um, and so we have myriad who, So when we first got together, I had a cat that was my cat. His name was Cooper Black, and he was a little black tomcat, and he was the world's best cat. He never destroyed anything. He barely made any noise. He was small. He flew on airplanes. He was friends with everybody. Like, you could just put him in a car carrier and drive across the country with him a couple times, which I did. He just, he was the world's best cat. Yeah. He, He well, he was my he was my cat. They're all from the Humane Society, and so he yeah. kicked me out. I had been right. through a horrible relationship, and it had ended tragically, just awfully. And my doctoral advisor was like, come on, Ursula, we're going to go out for a cup of coffee. And I was like, all right, all right. So she takes me out, and then we pull up in front of the Humane Society. I'm like, this is not a coffee shop. She's like, "In, you need a cat. I'm like, great. great. <laughs> I'm going to die alone, and now I'm going to have a cat to eat me. Like, what? Well, no. And so we go into the cat colony room and all the cats ignore me. Yes. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm unlovable. Even the cats don't want me. This is it. I'm, I'm oh, just going to no. curl up. And, and so I stand up and I pick up my tote bag, which is on the ground. And I realize why the other cats were avoiding me because there are these two yellow eyes staring at me. And that's all I saw. And he looked at me. He's like, get me out of here. And so I carried my bag to the lady. I'm like, cat, how much? She was like, that, was, that one's been returned three times, $50. And I was like, sold. Um, I don't know why he was ever returned. He was a perfect cat. Maybe he was waiting for me. But he was, he was such a good cat that um, after marrying Brian, he's like, I want a cat. And so we go, and this kitten falls asleep on his lap. And he's got that one. And I'm like, all right, that one. Um, and then we took her home. And then the drugs from her spay wore off. <laughs> <laughs> she was not so quiet. <laughs> she became a ping pong ball with teeth. Yes. She was just a, a fierce, wild little creature. And that's Myriad. And she weighs five and a half pounds. She is a fierce, wild, mean little bundle of spite held together with bubblegum and bailing twine. She is Brian's cat. And she is a fierce, wicked little cat. And when Cooper passed, my heart was broken. And I thought, okay, well... My veterinarian friend suggests that I get a pair of kittens so that they can play with each other and leave Myriad alone because Myriad is not going to be okay with this. Right. And so, all right, we'll go to the Humane Society. And I I don't think that I could ever bring a cat home. I'm I'm heartbroken. And we'll just go look at the cats. Well, there's two kittens. Um, We take them home. They're they're sisters. (laughs) Um, Immediately, the first cats we look at at the first shelter we go to. Okay. Okay. and they are Dito, who is a tortoise shell, who is 14 and a half pounds, who is putting in search of a bowl. She is 
<laughs> friendly and mellow and a really fierce hunter. But when it comes to people, she will just roll over. It's like, pet my belly. Um, and then there is Zap Fino, Zap, who is her sister, who's a calico, who is strangely brilliant. Mm. She's broken every collar I've put her in until I zip tied it. We have indoor cats, but they wear collars because we live in a city. And yeah. she... She stares into the corners. I think she can see fairies. She zooms sure. around the house. Um, you may be wondering, like, names. Names are, you're all, these are strange cat names. Yeah. They're all named after typefaces. <laughs> <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> so, That's so funny. <laughs> so Cooper Black was a small round cat with heavy serifs. He was all okay. black. So Cooper okay. Black, that's that type. Myriad was identical to her sister, except uh, Myriad has a characteristic descender, the type face. Her tail has three stripes. Okay. Um, Dido is a round French group of type faces that gets along in any design situation. And Zapfino is an elegant, curving type face with lots of little lines sticking out all over it. So names are important. Yes. And, you know, it's mixed in with art. So that's perfect. That's true. So the names of the cats in my book, actually all the characters have kind of hidden meanings too. Okay. Yeah, I was going to, so my next question is, is there something in the book that only some people would get? Like, did you hide anything for family and friends? Oh, lots and lots and lots of things, largely among names. Because I think very carefully about all names because names... Names are important. Names are important. Names and pronouns, man. You got to get that in there. So Scylla is named Scylla because it's a shortened form of Priscilla. Mm -hmm. And the name Priscilla means ancient because Scylla's question is an old one, but she's a very small cat. Yes. Okay. Uh, Beto means blessed because Beto knows who he is and who his friends are. We shall be so lucky. Uh, let's see. Aliyah is a term from Tibetan Buddhism, and it is sort of tied to a larger structural idea that the things in this world aren't real, but what we experience is. Okay. So that tags back to her. Uh, Paolo is named Paolo for uh, Paolo, which is where the hypogeum in Valletta is. And that's where, in the bit where the, the old lady cat is telling Beto riddles there is a statue of a woman and that statue was found in paola so it's connect it connects uh yeah. dolce and paolo in that way and paolo as a name also means humble <laughs> which is what he strives to be yeah uh radagunda the dog the poodle is named for the patron saint um, of drowning victims or people who are lost at sea which is a very good name for a fisherwoman's dog. Yes. Uh, Dolce is actually named for Owen's poem. Uh, uh, so Owen was a poet who died in World War I, and he left a poem, How Sweet and Fitting It Is to Die for One's Country, which is a very bitter and angry poem about war and about loss. So I have that as Dolce's name uh, because she's seen a lot in her long life, but also because it does mean sweet. And it's the, the sweetness of life that she's talking about and how wonderful the world is, even through her own particular little viewpoint. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, see? 
You are awesome. Oh, <laughs> thanks. That is amazing. Like, I don't even know what to say. I'm all like, I'm just pondering all of that. That is so cool. Well, if it makes you feel better, there's also a My Brother, My Brother and Me reference. Is there? Yeah. Unless, unless you see that with the the cats in the the citadella. So the group of cats that all speak in turn, who are their their way of speaking. This this, I no spoilers here, but it's right. an alternate garden, a garden that is sinister and perhaps not the right garden. They're the lotus eater cats, right? They're like, come stay here, it's fine. Their manner of speaking yes. was actually almost directly lifted from a phantom toll booth where it is all the ministers, the undersecretary oh of understanding. That dun, 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 back yeah, see, back that would explain why it sounded <laughs> like the tiniest bit familiar, but like I didn't connect that at all. But, it, but yeah, like, now that you say it, I'm like, of course it is. It, it's half phantom toll booth and half Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, okay. If you read it quickly enough. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Little pitter patter. Yeah. And I guess I would tell parents too that there are a couple parts of this book where you might think something bad happens, but everything kind of turns out okay. Yeah. It's funny. My my daughter, I was revising this book for the last time and she was reading it along with me and she said, do you know what there aren't enough of? And I said, what baby? And she said, books that don't have bad guys. And that really sort of turned a, a piece in my brain because it's like, well, what happens if there is a book without a bad guy? So in a way, that there are definitely characters that are sinister right. in this book, but they are not the thing that the characters are going up against. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. They're not the bad guy. They are guys who make bad choices, <laughs> yeah. but they are not the bad guy. So it's that's been sticking in, in my writing brain lately. How do you write a book without villains? Cause I did it once yeah. without trying to. So the next one doesn't have villains either. It's interesting. That is interesting. Especially since I feel like there's a plethora of villain origin stories and, um, you know, in, in kid lit right now. And that can be fun, right? Cause one of the reasons I think a lot of people like villain origin stories are you do good because it's nice to be good. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. But then, but then you have to figure out like, well, what is the reason why somebody might do a bad thing? And then that is a bigger story than why somebody does the right thing most of the time. So that character gets rounder and fuller and more interesting and has more little bits to hang on to in your brain. It's like the Batman villains. Batman wouldn't be Batman without the Batman villains. He'd just be a dude in a cape, which is, you know, <laughs> he'd be a rich dude in a cape, <laughs> yeah, you know, and nuts to that. But if he didn't have the yeah. Joker and if he didn't have the Riddler and if he didn't have Poison Ivy, my personal favorite, I was just going to say me too. Oh, I love her. Right. If you didn't have all of these fascinating backstories, uh, it, it wouldn't be such a thing. So in the absence of a villain, I think in my writing, I tend to put all that back into the characters, which means they're a little less, nice right they're not like it's not so they're they're more three-dimensional because it's not like and no one is nice all the time right you know? right I think I think that's a trap that a lot of people who pick books for children feel like they need to do they say what what 
does this have the moral rectitude? Does this have the the morals that I want my child to have? Um, right, right. And that's that takes away the joy of of rolling around in somebody who is not you. Yeah, making choices you wouldn't make. Right. Oh gosh. Now I'm deep. Now I'm all contemplative. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> So interesting. You've given me so much to think about. So what, I know you're busy, but like, have you been reading any like middle grade or YA books that you'd want to recommend lately? Oh, gosh. Um, If you haven't yet read Jerry Craft's books. New Kid. A New Kid and A Class Act, which is really wonderful. Okay. Um, They are books where the dialogue is so good that it works as an audiobook. Their comics that work as an audiobook. He's got such a finely tuned ear for writing uh, how people actually talk, and that's really brilliant. Let's see. I am. I am always reading, and things are collapsing. I know that is what head. I do. Whenever someone asks me what I'm reading, I start like looking at all the shelves. I'm like, all right, hold on. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Um, as I look over, and it is largely reference books that I'm reading <laughs> right now. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> That's okay. I put you on the spot. No, no, it's okay. It's just not that, not that interesting an answer. Um, I've been rereading One Crazy Summer. Okay. So that series, they are by Rita Williams Garcia. And it's about three girls who are growing up in 1960s New York and then are sent to spend a summer with their radical Black Panther mom in California. And they go through the Black Panther movement as this historical lens through the eyes of three super relatable girls. Um, one, One Crazy Summer is the first one. And then there's two others where if you love that book, you'll just go out and read the other two right away. Uh, they're really wonderful. I've been, Reread A Golden Goblet again. I can recommend that one. Um, let's see. Oh, gosh. We've been reading the Redwall series, which yeah. still holds up. Still, yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, that's endless. My they're, so, they're so long and there's so many. And the lore. The lore is so good. It is. Uh, Have you uh, made your own fake swords yet to, you know, to get I, all into it? I mean, I had a kid that dressed up as a Redwall figure, so... All my kids were like, if if they loved a book, then they wanted a costume to match it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Sparky is more into the sort of creative construction of it. So at six, a a stick is a sword. We haven't yet gotten into high level of craft for daily play, but... There have certainly been a lot of sticks repurposed. I bet, yes. For artillery, so we've enjoyed that. (laughs) Yeah. We used to make a lot of swords out of that, like, pink foam, like that you get at Home Depot. Yep, yep. Insulated foam quality. Insulated foam. You know, you you can weather that. that. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's good for boys to hit each other, you know, because I have have four boys and one girl, so. Oh, you're outnumbered. uh, Yeah. Yes. I don't know. It was, it was good for girls to hit each other. I'm trying to remember remembering as a little kid, my friend Barbara and I mock battled all over. 
Yeah. And then you get to the bit where it was like bows and arrows. I remember making our, trying desperately to make our own bows and arrows and getting the twigs and having my dad say like, you know, if you were to reinforce that, and my mom's like, would you not? Would you not? <laughs> right, exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, kid, all kids go through an Egypt phase. I went through an Egypt phase. Oh, most sure. Kid, most kids go through a medieval Europe phase. I remember getting back a an assignment from school on medieval melee weapons, and it had an A+, plus, which was an A+, plus a visit to the school psychologist's office. Why is, <laughs> why is nice. a second grader... Are, does your child know, you know, seven different types of pole arms? And my dad's like, she can read. Like, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't like a sword? So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. All right. Anything else? Oh, gosh. I, I feel like, I, I feel like we've covered it all. We've covered an awful lot. We've covered an awful lot. And <laughs> we're like at like a pretty long time. Well, thank right. you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, for being on and joining me because it was awesome. Oh, it's I, my absolute pleasure. I'll talk about comics all day. Good. I will. I will come up with a new list of questions, and uh, you will become our new guru. <gasps> I will be calling on you again. Oh, great! Call on me anytime. <laughs> awesome. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at bookish underscore society and on Twitter at bookish society. And of course, on our website, thebookishsociety.com. Thanks again to Chris Rieger for his audio engineering magic. Thank <laughs> you.